we're going to talk about the art and we're going to do the whole thing. All right. We're going in depth. Uh, do you guys have like a format? Do you, uh, you're in it, man. I'm John Mejias in New York. And I'm Zach Smith in Los Angeles. Once again, you're listening to We Eat Art, a podcast where we talk to a real live visual artist about the thing that I've always liked about paranoid thinking is that paranoids are excellent researchers. And joining this week, we have Drew Heitzler. Talking about... Like, I think everything I do is sort of good enough. I'm not after, like, a formal perfection. It really is sort of, like, more about a broad idea of things. That's kind of a social exercise. Uh, what we usually do is we start in the beginning. Mm-hmm. In a hospital somewhere, you were born. Uh, that's true. Uh, where was, was that? Charleston, South Carolina. Okay. I grew up on the coast in South Carolina, and then high school moved to Nashville, and then went to New York straight from there. So you were like one of those people with like, my family was creative and I'm creative, or was it like one of these things where like, my family was uncreative and I was a rebel? Uh, yeah, my, my family is very uncreative, and in, in, uh, I don't know if I was a rebel. I was, I was just a drug dealer, <laughs> like okay. primarily. Yeah. All right. I mean, my folks are plenty supportive. They, what were they, yeah. what did they do? I grew up with my mom and my stepdad, and my stepdad, he's an engineer. They're retired now. Okay. My mother did political fundraising. Okay, that and, makes sense. And my father, this is a great one, my father is the mayor of Goose Creek, South Carolina. <laughs> which, now, I'm imagining <laughs> your father wears a white suit, and he shakes a lot of hands and eats a lot of fried chicken and he goes, hello there. Yeah, he I does do that. A children's book and he meets Curtis George. He's just on that. He actually, he, he was a like Marine. He grew up, my grandfather's in the Marines. So right. He was like, he grew up mostly in California and Hawaii. Okay. But he has developed over the years this ridiculous Southern accent that he only uses in public. Right. It's not like, it's not authentic at all. <laughs> He's a real trip. He's a okay. he's a trip of a guy. Well, was he around when you were a kid? Uh, yeah, I mean, I would go there for the weekend. Okay, so it was like yeah, my, he was he was, he was in my yeah. yeah he was in my life. But yeah, he was uh, he was also the elementary school principal in Goose Creek, South Carolina. So I mean, it really is a small town. No kidding. The only significant thing about Goose Creek is that the Navy brig is there, and that's where they're holding. Uh, Basically, like the guys that they couldn't send to Guantanamo because they're American citizens, they nice. send there. So there's like these three guys that have been they've been charged with anything. They just sit there. And uh, I was reading the Village Voice when I was in New York, and I like read this article. I'm like, there it is, like Goose Creek, South Carolina. So I called my dad, and I was like, Hey, I just read this article in the Voice about Goose Creek, and he was like, No, no, that's federal property. It's not Goose Creek. And if it's your friends who keep calling me, tell them to stop. <laughs> <laughs> so you didn't grow up in Goose Creek, or it was like Goose Creek and another town, or it was all Goose Creek? Yeah, well, Mount Pleasant is a uh, sort okay. of like town on the coast, just like suburbs. Okay. Um, and then on the weekends, like Goose Creek was like an hour. In I mostly asked because I like to say Goose Creek. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's um, a funny. Yeah, it's a Mount duck. Pleasant, we had one yeah, of those in yeah. Everybody has a Mount Pleasant. Yeah. yeah, Duck Ditch is the is the euphemism for Goose Creek. 
Because it needs one. It needs something to take down the high and mighty sounding Goose Creek. Yeah, there's nothing. So you grew up in this place. Um, were you like Jasper Johns or you're like, I became an artist to get out of this place? Or was it just like, how? what was your relationship to the place you grew up? Uh, I mean, I, I liked it. I, you know, I, I grew up just like surfing and it, I mean, it was fine. It was fine. And then when I went to Nashville, that was sort of more interesting because... What was that high school, college? Or? That was high school, like okay. three years of high school. In the 80s, so all of the heavy metal bands, when they they would record like their ballads, they would all do it in Nashville for some reason. So they all like the power all, ballads. Yeah, yeah, you know, like uh, like when Poison would, you know, like every rose has its thorn, sure, right? Yeah. They would want the like that resonant like Nashville sound. So they would go there. So all of these sort hold of hold on, is that legit, Justin? That sounds realistic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a thing. All right. <laughs> I mean, my, my point is that all of these metal bands would all play Exit In, which was like this like Vanderbilt college bar, but all of us had fake IDs, so we would go see these these metal bands all the time. So that was like kind of the best thing about Nashville because where I grew up in South Carolina was small enough that sort of not much music came through there at all. And, you know, Nashville, of course, had all the country music, but it also had all this other stuff that was mm -hmm. kind of cool. So I liked it there fine, too. But, you know, as soon as I could, I, I moved to New York okay. as soon as I got out of high school. And I went to college there. Did you go to art school? And no, I didn't. I, uh, I went to Fordham University, and I studied philosophy. And I thought I was going to be oh, a man. lawyer. How did you decide you wanted to be... Was that like you went to... Like you were like... Well, you went to school for philosophy. So when did you decide, like, I'm going to be a philosopher or teach philosophy? Like, how did that creep into your life? I mean, I always enjoyed reading. I still read a lot. And, you know, I was a fairly smart kid in high school, but I didn't have very good grades. I was a total jock. I actually went to Fordham on a soccer scholarship. You were one of those jock drug dealer, like, <laughs> philosophy students. Yeah, I, was, totally. I was like a jock kid, but I, like, still liked music. And I, I would go to Grateful Dead shows by Sheets of Acid. And then bring him back to Nashville and go to Starwood Amphitheater and sit in the, the parking lot and sell him for five bucks a hit. And then also me and my buddy Jay, we found this... Uh, he was kind of a dirtbag, otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of, yeah. We found this gas station like out in the sticks that would sell us beer. So every Friday we would drive out there and buy like, you know, 40 cases of beer and then go to whatever house party it was and sell, you know, six packs out of the, out of the back. Did you have a mullet? No, I didn't have a mullet. I always wore a baseball cap. Anyway, go ahead. You know who was around then in Nashville, though, was Harmony Kareen. Oh, yeah, and that he, makes perfect sense. He used to be one of my customers, one of my acid customers. That guy dropped acid? <laughs> no way. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, we, like, reconnected once or twice back when he, like, wound up in New York and sort of had some memories. Yeah, I mean, so I was sort of, like, all over the place. I was kind of good at high school. Like, I, I had a lot of friends. I, I wasn't, like... A misanthrope at all. Like, yeah, I yeah. kind of enjoyed it. And then I went to New York and went to college and played soccer for a year and then stopped. I just, like, wasn't into it anymore. I, I don't really remember how I started studying philosophy, but it was just, like, one of those things that I think I took, like, a philosophy class and I really liked it. And I was like, I don't know what else I'm going to do. So I just started reading philosophy, which, okay. was, which was nice. And then I got a job at CBGB's. <laughs> Which, what'd you do there? Uh, I did everything there. I started out working in the pizza place, which was next door. What year was this? Uh, 1991. You probably sold me pizza. Yeah, It was probably. that place, that place had the really good sausage. It looked like little rabbit pellets, but it was actually really tasty. It's probably rabbit pellets. <laughs> <laughs> 
no. So I, I worked there. I, I worked the door. I pushed people off the stage. You, know, you I, probably I, told I, people not to bring pizza in. Yeah, you uh, were that guy, and I said, fuck you. Because... But Hilly, Hilly had three places. He had the pizza place, he had the club, and then he had, like, the gallery, right. which was sort of, like, where they did, like, acoustic music. Yeah. And I worked in all three of it. Like, basically just whatever they wanted me to do. Right. And sort of, like, the club was, like, the golden land. Like, that was, like, the cool place to work. The dudes who worked there had been working there for decades. I bar-backed in there every once in a while, and I worked the stage. That I, that I liked. I liked working the stage. That was fun. I mean, for those of you who never were at the CBGBs, the stage was at your crotch. Yeah. So if you're working the stage, you're not down in a pit. You're just standing right yeah, in front you, of people. Well, you were sta- yeah, standing like right in front of the speaker that was just like blasting you. And just like whenever someone jumped up on the stage, you would like sort of move towards them, at which point they would usually dive off. And if they didn't, you'd give them a little push, and then they would dive off. But that like was this goddamn hillbilly <laughs> dirtbag pushing <laughs> out on stage. Were you a, were you a hardcore kid at all? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, well, this was like a real musical education for me because okay. um, I became a hardcore kid through this. But no, in high school, no, I listened to heavy metal and you know, like some like speed. But it was like whatever was on MTV. Like I wasn't like deep into music. And the job at CBGB's, I just got through, like, a friend. Like, she was leaving, and she knew I needed a job. And she was like, hey, you want to work at this pizza place? And I was like, yeah, sure, whatever. That was probably the most important thing that happened to me in New York, I would say. Like, so how it, long were you there? I was there for two and a half years. And, and we then could probably I, fill stories for an hour and a half just as that. Yeah, you know, I met David Yao recently from Jesus Lizard, and I saw, I was there. I wasn't working, but I was in the crowd the night that he got knocked out. In the pit, yeah, and was wandering around the stage, just being like, oh, "I'm such a pussy, I'm such a pussy," and like all the band members were in the crowd, like trying to find the guy who'd like <laughs> stage dove with them and knocked him out, and it was like this big melee. But that was sort of you know recollecting with I, him. I remember like when it was closing, they threw all those benefits, right. but the thing was they didn't care if you trashed the place because <laughs> it was going to be gone. <laughs> but it was like. I Hate God or somebody was playing in that railing yeah. like that separates the seats. That just broke. Right. That, it was oh, just like yeah, a yeah, big yeah. pit thing right. and it went, <laughs> and they were like, well, we're losing our lease anyway. You know? So you were there for two and a half years. Uh, yeah, I mean, when I graduated from college, I just kind of split New York for a while. Like I, I moved around the country a little bit just trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I had taken a couple art classes in undergrad, and I was like, I liked it. So when I decided I wanted to move back to New York, I called one of my professors, and I was like, hey, I was thinking about maybe being an artist. And he was like, oh, all right, well, my, my wife, who's her, Valerie Jardin, who was a pattern decoration painter, right, yeah. it's like, she needs an assistant you want to work for? I was like, yeah, totally. I uh, love that that worked. <laughs> like, that doesn't even work in art school. Like, hey, I need a job. I'm right. going to be an artist now. I, it wasn't even like, I, I, I was just sort of interested in it. And she was awesome. Man. I mean, I'm not even really a painter, but she taught me how to paint. Mm. And she, you know, gave me all this, like, feminist literature to read. Like, And she was working at Hunter at the time. So she was, you know, she's like, if you want to go to grad school, you know, I can recommend you. I can, like, help you get into mm. Hunter. I never really thought about nice. it this way, but... Who are, we were talking to somebody about p- pattern decoration movement. Your stuff is kind of P&D in a certain way in that you take something that has, like, a content and you make it into a colored pattern. You know, yeah, like, you kind of true. patternize it. Yeah, uh, but I think I, th- I think I probably learned less formal aspects from her and just sort of in, like, more... Uh, 
Like it was like a political education. Yeah, but it's interesting yeah. how because that's an overlap. Like yeah, for sure. For P and D, like the the whole thing was like minimalism and the sort of like uh, decoration free aesthetic was a male aesthetic, right? And the pattern was like a female feminized aesthetic, and it was like something Correct. that women had always been doing, and then they right. did this thing. But it, it, like in a lot of your work, you're taking something that has like a very specific cultural content, and you kind of push it so that it becomes like a form that's a, uh, or that's it has like a really, kind that's of like a, that's a real, I've never thought of it that way, but, but I it's mean, actually it, a really cool way to look at I it. I mean, I don't think yeah. it is P and D, but I think it's like that push-pull between like there's a, a visual that carries an idea. And I mean, for me, it's sort of like maybe coming from philosophy background, it's like the, the ideas come first. And then it is sort of like it's a matter of mapping the ideas and finding some sort of aesthetic thread that sort of runs through it. So, I mean, what you're saying is sort of spot on. I just, I just sort of never thought of it in those terms where it does become like it, it becomes like a cognitive patterning of sort of like a broad idea. It's just if you can like key in on little elements of that broad idea and then stretch it out to like 200 images or something, then the sort of the pattern emerges. Is it like if you're thinking something, you have a a chain of thought, you close your eyes and certain images appear that spark off the chain of thought and they connect them or link them in some way? Like are the images that we see related to your thought process? when you're? Uh, Yeah, well, I mean, I have a very sort of specific way of working where... I have an idea. I mean, it usually comes from a book or, you know, like I read something or the earliest work I did in L.A. just had to do with when I moved out here, I was living on La Cienega near Culver City, actually near where the bar is now. And I had this this art gallery with my ex-wife and we were building out the space. So I was driving down to Home Depot all the time and I had to drive through that Baldwin Hills oil field. Right. And that just blew my fucking mind. Like that aspect of Los Angeles had never even kind of occurred to me. Okay, right. for people who don't know, in the middle of L.A., there's just, like, Texas-style oil, yeah, like, oil dinosaurs decks. that just go endlessly. There's this sort of uh, idea that L.A. sells about itself, which is a sort of Hollywood, I suppose. But I started researching this and discovered that L.A. was an oil town, and it's kind of the reason the place existed in the first place, was everybody came out here because there was oil. So I sort of keyed in on that, like Baldwin Hills, Using this sort of, you'll appreciate this, this sort of pensionesque, paranoid thinking, just like took that site and then did a little research about the site, and I draw Baldwin Hills on the paper, and then a couple lines off of it, and research, and like come across something I like. So Ladera Heights is is next to it, and Ladera Heights was called uh, Black Beverly Hills because during the segregationist period, that's where all the wealthy African American people lived. They also called it Pill Hill because all the doctors that lived up there. Um, so then I write down Ladera Heights, and then, you know, I find out, you know, there was a, uh, uh, some sort of natural disaster. So, it, it, you know, it spins out from that, and I just keep adding these different names, and I create these sort of, like, sprawling maps. And then once the, the maps are created, and I usually stop at around 200 names or places, then I start researching and finding images that I like that correspond to each of those ideas. Mm-hmm. And then... Those images are taken from whatever source. Um, In the beginning, I didn't do anything to them. They were just, like, appropriated wholesale. And then the presentation would just, they would be framed, and it would just be, like, these 200 framed images that sort of become, uh, I I guess, sort of like illustration of this broad 
of, of the place, right? And, right. I guess, and I guess what I was trying to do, like that first project and when I came to L.A., I guess I was just trying to get a, like a handle on the place. Mm-hmm. It sounds like one of those things that just gets in your mind and you can't get it out. Like you just keep thinking about it all the time. And you're like, i got to make some art about those. Right. And I didn't exactly like Los Angeles when I got here. Like, I, my former wife had gotten into graduate school. So the reason I came out here was because she was going to UCLA. So I thought it was going to be like, all right, I got two years to kill. Right. And then I'll be back in New York. And I've been here 12 years now. So something stuck. But I, I think I was just like, I was like, all right, I'll spend two years trying to figure out what this place is about, mm-hmm. you know, in like a real larger way. And, and, and I've enjoyed it. I mean, now I guess I'm stuck here. I don't know why I stayed. I really don't. My friends in New York are like, why are you still out there? And I don't have a good answer for them. You surf too, though, don't you? I do. I do surf. Can you just say I surf? Yeah, I guess I could say it. <laughs> but when people look at your work, the mental map that strings the images together, the thread, what do you or do you imagine the viewer's relationship to it? Do they look at it and then go, oh, I get it? They look at it and go, oh, I got to research this. They look at it and there's like, you expect them to not get it, but they feel a resonance. Like, what's their relationship to the narrative that you know is there? Right. Well, in the beginnings, the map piece, yeah. it was always presented, but presented like in a, a gallery off to the side or maybe like in the office. Like, it was never presented like amongst the images because what I didn't want was this sort of like people going to the map. And like using it as sort of like a key or something. Mm-hmm. I was sort of much more interested in just how this group of images formulated this sort of like cinematic narrative. That you actually, you didn't need all the information. You could just sort of glean it from scooting across these images. And then the map was there. I guess to my mind, it's sort of like a footnote, maybe, right? Like this is just to clarify my thinking, so for the viewers, they look at it, they come to whatever like their decisions about it are, and then they can look at the, the text map and sort of see my ideas about how all these things fit together. But those maps, they're sort of like spider web. The ideas are abstract. It would be hard to sort of glean It's a any... record of a thought process. Yeah, exactly. So it doesn't have a, exactly. an arc. The thing that I've always liked about paranoid thinking is that, well, two things. Paranoids are excellent researchers, like often their often their conclusions can be suspect, right. or, but their research is often excellent. So I I like to read paranoid literature or uh, paranoid websites, like you know these these guys who uh, you know are tying like Area Fifty Seven to UFOs that were brought over after World War II because the Germans had experimented with world. You know, like I love all that shit because you go through it and like I said, the conclusions are a little off, but the research, it's all true. Like what right. they're pointing to, like it actually happened. And you're yeah. like, holy crap, there was like this whole Operation Mockingbird existed, right? Or, so that's <laughs> interesting. Do you consider yourself a paranoid? Uh, no, but what I was going to say is what I, what I like about actual paranoid thinking is it's just for true paranoids, there's basically no such thing as coincidence, right? right. Like the fact that the four of us are in this room to a true paranoid means that we are all in cahoots, right? right? That we are uh, planning together something. If someone has the same name as another person, there must be some relationship. Roland Barthes said art doesn't have noise. If it's in a piece of art, it's doing something right. to the piece of art. Right. So there's like a relationship there between paranoid thinking and art thinking because like... True. No, that's an interesting idea. 
Maybe I am a fucking paranoid. I don't. Yeah. <laughs> I so mean, many revelations. It's like whether you believe it or not, right? Yeah. But, I mean, you uh, know the Laurel Canyon conspiracy. Oh yeah, well, the, there was FBI plot. It was pretty the, complicated. Like yeah. it's immensely. Right. Yeah. I mean, you is. and Justin can talk about that all day, but we'll talk right. about you right now. Well, okay, okay. But here's the thing that's interesting. Just, just briefly about the Laurel Canyon conspiracy is, you know, that it started out as a website, and I like read through the website, but you know, he's published it as an actual book now. So what I like about that is like it's a solid object that exists forever, right? So somewhere down the line, like this thing's just going to keep existing. So that idea now exists as like as a real historical canon. Library right? of Congress number. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. ISSB. Yeah. I mean, I guess if you study philosophy, I mean, you had like a bachelor's, right? But yeah. if you read philosophy, like one thing that's in the history of philosophy is that an idea is a thing? Yeah, of course. You know, which I think most people don't think of that every day. Like right. as an, ideas that Plato had, we still have them as things somewhere in our thinking. Like so the idea is a thing yeah. a, as like a true or not that just kind of keeps on its own existence despite it not being true or relevant or whatever right. in an immediate way is something that that interests you. Yeah, of course. And, and like philosophy at its most basic is like a quest for truth, right? Sort of like a, a secular quest for truth. Like once we decide that God is dead, it's like, all right, so we have to figure out what, what this is about. And everybody's got different ideas about that, and they shift around over history, and you know, science gets involved. But I've always sort of liked exactly that idea that the truth is just an idea, and ideas are things. I, I was always a big fan of Smithson, like sort of in grad school, and he's very much about the solidity of language. And Pynchon, to a certain extent, is as well. Like when, you know, when he builds his literature into uh, the form of a mandala, right? It's like if Smithson is, is you know, turning rocks into signs, then you know, Pynchon is turning words into like a solid thing. Right to my mind, and that that interests me a lot. And then ultimately, what that gets me to is that sort of like the most important thing about art or thinking of any kind is just that it exists. Right. Well, that goes to a question I was going to ask. When you are working this way, where you're sort of sketching out of your thoughts, and then the final piece is sort of symbols of that thinking. Is there a way to do it wrong? Uh, or yeah. is it just that's the record of the process? That was the only record you could possibly have made. What are the pitfalls? Like, how can you do it wrong? The, the pitfalls are a bad show, and I've made them. Well, what makes it a bad show? <laughs> like, to you, when you look at it, you go, because you already know, you know why the ideas are linked. Right. Right? Yeah. The audience may or may not. Who are you disappointing in what way? And in, right. If it's all, it's always going to be a record of a thought process, in a sense. Right. There's no way to fail to make a record of a thought Th process, even if you're true. just making pancakes. So, so how do you judge that I've done it wrong? Right. You know? I think it, it happens at the um, opening, where you're there and you see people. Because, you know, you, in the studio and over the course of time, like, you get so into it, you just, like, lose sight of it entirely, right? So you've put it all in there, in this room, and then people come into the room, and you can almost tell sort of like j just by their body language, like if it's resonating or if it's just like flatlining. If it resonates, then I've succeeded, and if it, it doesn't, if that group of people, there's just like sort of no vibration coming off of them, then I know that for whatever reason, like this body of work or that body of ideas just didn't fly 
in sort of like a larger way. That's but, interesting. But, so you're, ba- I mean, you're judging it off of the audience. Oh yeah, the sure. Yeah. And the opposite's true too. Like I've had shows where you can just tell, just by. And actually, the the show that I think was the most successful was probably the <coughs> most uh, poorly attended, just because it was early in my career. Nobody knew who I was, but just like the the group of people that were there. And it wasn't just all my friends, but but you could tell that they like they really sort of like I want to say understood, but it's that that's not the right word. They felt the connections, or they felt the narrative strain, or they they felt the conceptual thinking, and you could tell, and you you could just like tell that they did. And then other examples where the room was was just like the energy was just bad. <laughs> that sounds like real hippy dippy, and I'm like not that way but it's still like you know you can tell like when you walk right into a, you watch people yeah or like you know when you see like a band that you love when they're on or when they're off right. you know yeah. and you can tell by the audience you can you know you can tell when it's like really res the room's resonating and when it's not you know and for artists unfortunately you kind of get one shot to have like a whole group of people in the room yeah to sort of to sort of feel that the great thing about art is that it stays around forever that's the thing that i really like about it so who knows, like, you know, maybe that show that I thought was terrible, you know, over the decades resonates in a Does that mean way. that you actually can't fail? It means none of us can fail. <laughs> oh but I mean, what I was saying, it's like, if you really get to a state where you can't fail, right. then you have, it's like, you get to, why make anything? You know, like, I'll crumble up this aluminum, I just made something. I but you, you want to get it your idea that you're having right at that moment. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think it, I think it's really important that art exists in, in sort of, like, all forms, in music and poetry and literature and film. Like, it's kind of the only decent thing that we do as humans, right? Is so it it's like important the that bad art exists? Well, it's <laughs> it's sort of... Yeah, and this is where we can, like, get really, like, philosophical. Let's do it. Is... I'm not sure if that that's a thing. I'm not sure if bad art, like that, that's judgment, right? Well, you go in, you have your show that it doesn't resonate with those people, right? But then there's always the chance after you're dead, eons later, it's good right. for some other audience. That it so changes. It's just yeah. good that you made something, right? Yeah. Well, Rembrandt fucked the maid, right? You know, have you, have you I didn't, read this oh, article? We didn't talk. Oh, <laughs> um, Rembrandt, Rembrandt disappeared for. I think close to a hundred years, and he was like during his lifetime he was a very successful artist, mostly because he was married to or not you know he was also a very good painter, but he was also married to this sort of important the daughter of this important merchant who was buying his work and getting his friends to buy it and putting it in the Rijksmuseum yada yada yada, um, and then Rembrandt fucked the maid and his father-in-law fucked him and erased him from art history. Like, just all of the, basically all the paintings were just put in storage. And it was in the 19th century that these two, like, English uh, scholars, art historians, found these, like, found these paintings in the basement of, you know, I don't know, some European museum, and were like, these are great, and sort of resurrected him, right? So... Rembrandt's art was good, it was bad, and then it was good again. Okay. A lot of your work is appropriation. You take mm. an object that's not art and right. you put it in the gallery, and now it is, right? Sure, yeah. And you're not sure art can ever be bad, right? True. Art is the only good thing that we make, right? Yes, yes. But then, does that mean that we make anything bad since anything can be art? Oh, <laughs> This oh, sure. phone, right? right you right, can appropriate yeah. it. Like, if, if you signed this, it would be art. Right. Right. We made it, right. 
art can't be bad. Right. So everything on this table is good. Well, that, okay, what, but that assumes, that assumes that everything about man is good. And that, and... Oh, man. <laughs> we need to figure it out. <laughs> right. Right? And yeah, that, yeah. and that is not necessarily true. Now, here's... Like, is that basically, the, like, what you're grappling with? Because if you're going to, you're going to take something elevated to art, right. which gives it a status where you're not sure it'll ever be bad, because you did make it, and right. you did say it was art. Correct. You're the person who decides whether the tongue depressor or the phone case goes in. Yes. Which which represents the good part of man. Right. Well, it's also why I guess the real question there is why why am I allowed that privilege, right? Um, why why do I get to possess that responsibility? Right? Well, right now you get to possess right now it I get for to, reasons. Yeah, I can fuck know, the like, maid and it could all go to shit. Yeah. Because um, you didn't fuck the maid. I didn't fuck the maid. Like that's the answer to that question. Yeah. Next question. But, yeah. No, but but wait a minute. But but moving back for a second, you know, every everything's art or is good or bad. But is is everything interesting art? Is usually something on my mind. Well, we didn't ask if it was art. We asked if it was good art, right? And doesn't good right. imply interesting? This is um, a more important word instead of good or bad. Maybe. Well, it, the way I see it, or the way I've understood it, is you know, once Greenberg, once the modernists sort of get shut down by the postmodernists. It's sort of the, the critique of judgment, like Kant's critique of judgment, which had been the sort of milestone for determining uh, quality, right, good or bad, sort of gets dismissed by the postmodernists in terms of interest, right? So good and bad goes away. So now, uh, as you're saying, it's, what's important is if it's interesting, Right. Which is kind of the same word, but we'll not go yeah, into that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Sorry. There, 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 there are distinctions. Yeah, thank you. But, okay, so, so now the problem is, and I think maybe some people are just starting to grapple with this in the larger, larger art community, is now that sort of things, as we all know, have escalated to this sort of like manic, sort of frantic point, maybe now what makes something good or bad is just whether or not it's purchased. Well, what Mel Bachner, when I was making fun of Mel Bachner because he taught at Yale, I would go, well, I don't know. Is anyone really interested in interesting anymore? <laughs> well, like, my personal take what? is like, I don't care if something is good a millions of years after I'm dead, but I didn't go to school for philosophy. Right. I think of it like cookies. If I eat a cookie and then someone says, I know this is really bad cookie, but it, in a thousand years, someone might like it. Right. It's just important that there's a cookie. I'm like, yeah, but I'm eating cookies now, right. and you I'm going to die. Want the cookie to so be I'm good. much more selfish in that regard. But I think you're just a true modernist. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. He, he did once use cookies to make a sandwich. That's true. Like an ice cream sandwich? No, a regular sandwich. <laughs> I used to go to the sandwich shop every single day, and I would get a roast beef, goat cheese, lettuce, and tomato on whatever kind of bread they had. And one day they didn't have bread because the bread guy was not there. I was in between bread guys, right. and they had these big cookies, you know, like those sandwich shops have. And I was just put it on two cookies, and it was really good. <laughs> uh, and then, but the best part of the story is I was at Yale in New Haven. Five years later, I went back to lecture there. And I was just standing in line because the kids had taken me to the sandwich shop for right. my, you know. And and somebody behind the counter goes, hey, you're the guy who got the sandwich on the cookies. I'm like, that's how much stuff happens in New Haven. <laughs> right. Then I went back five years after that to do a reading for my book. Right. So this is 10 years later. I go to the sandwich shop. 
somebody behind the counter goes, I was talking to somebody next to me about that, you know, story. I was right. like, yeah, I was here. And the person behind the counter was like, you're the guy who got the sandwich on the cookies? <laughs> they tell us about that on day one. And I'm like, this is 10 years later. Yeah, day one is like, we can make sandwiches on anything. <laughs> this is what a let sandwich me you, is. Let me tell you about this guy. <laughs> sandwich is anything with meat in the middle, but not even necessarily meat in the middle. Point is, we're done with this part. <laughs> Sorry, that was my fault. It's a good story. <laughs> you were in New York at CBGB's for a couple years. Yeah. You were Then you were an assistant. Um, uh, yeah, I worked for Valerie. For Valerie, and yeah. then we skipped ahead to you're in LA and you're showing this one thing. But okay. so from Valerie, where did you go? Where from I there? guess okay. So I went to grad school at Hunter. Oh, okay, um, Valerie, oh, that explains it. Yeah, <laughs> Robert Morris. I studied with Bob Morris, but that was great because he was like you know philosophy minded, and I really enjoyed it. At the same time, I was working at uh, Sydney Janice Gallery. Okay. Which was uh, which was fun because you get to hold Mondrians and you know like do stuff like that. After grad school, I worked for Fred Wilson for a little while. I okay. worked for uh, Tom Wesselman. Um, I worked at the Whitney Bookstore, uh, and I got married along the way. I was living out in Williamsburg. Flora, my uh, f- who I was married to then, the Flora Wigman is her name. The two of us we opened this artist-run space called Champion Fine Art. That was the one that had exactly... You knew how many shows it was going to have. 21 right? shows. All the shows were numbered. It's, it started with number 21 and counted down. So 21 uh, months? 21 uh, yeah, two years. We did 21 shows in two years. So you had planned to do, have the show for two planned years. Planned obsolescence. And then stop. Yeah. What was the reason for that? The reason was that we didn't want to become art dealers. Uh, Flora's <laughs> a dancer. Still, she's still a, a great dancer. And I was still, I was making art. Had you had a show yet at that point? No. Okay. I, I didn't have a show until I got okay. out here to L.A. Oh, I had made this movie. I made this surf film called Subway Sessions about surfing in Rockaway Beach. Mm-hmm. I had shown that at Anthology Film Archives. I hear it's not hard to reach. It's, it's really not hard to reach, no. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, all right, so then we, we started this, this artist-run project, and the whole deal was we would just ask artist friends to curate a show, and they could do whatever they wanted. They could, they could just say, they could give it to one person, group shows, usually group shows. So every single one of the 21 shows was curated by a different artist? Yes, correct. Uh, so we had Steven Perino curated a show for us, uh, Maichi Perret, Josh Smith... Guy Richard Smith. If you're an artist, curating a show is like fraught as fuck, right? For sure, yeah. Because all your friends are like, <laughs> I refused to do it like a couple times because I was like, I don't want to be like, you get to be in the show and you don't. Like, that's a really scary thing. Oh, yeah, no. Like, was that a thing for everybody? or was uh, it just- You know, I don't, I, mean, I remember hearing Josh Smith telling Idas Barikas like when he brought his sculpture in, that he was just going to go home and hang himself now, at which point I just packed up all of his stuff and brought a whole new sculpture the whole day. But it's also like you go to art school and you know 35 people, and then you have a curated show, and unless it has 35 people in it, plus everyone you've met since then, you've just insulted somebody. Yeah, and our our space was small, so usually, you know, they usually put, like, you know, four or five people in. Um, But it was also sort of interesting because it was, you know, we asked artists and they would have their friends... Like, if you look now at the roster of artists that showed it to Champion Fine Artists, it's fucking ridiculous. Because, you know, it was just like, we didn't represent anybody. And it was just this sort of expansive thing. It was, it was really enjoyable. 
We lost a lot of money. Around what time was this? <laughs> we started it in 2003. Okay. Started in 2003 and ended in 2005. Okay. And it's actually the reason that we opened the bar, because basically... At the end of that two years, our credit cards were just fucking maxed. So this was in New York. Champion was in New York. It started in New York, and then Flora got into UCLA, so we just moved the whole operation out. So it existed one year in New York and one year in LA. So you own the Mandrake Bar, which is, for people who don't live in LA, it's basically the only bar in the neighborhood the Culver City neighborhood where, like, a lot of the art galleries are. And so it's sort of a meeting place because it's, like, they have readings there. Like, it's, like, it's the sort of art bar. I mean, less now than before. When we It's been open for 10 years. When we first opened, it was very much, like, it was about that neighborhood. Yeah. Now it's just just really, like, a neighborhood bar. It doesn't look like there's a lot of houses around there, but there actually are. So you opened the bar to pay retroactively for the gallery you would run for two years. Yeah, we just we had to we we had to do something that would actually make some money because the, you know the the gallery was the sort of like utopian idea that uh, you know curators and and collectors had too much control and artists needed to like get a hold of the like dialogue again and it you know wasn't about making money but we didn't want to be a non non for profit because then you had to have a board and then you had those like those people have to tell you what to do. It's like that thing of like everything starts as like idealism and then becomes a business and then becomes a scam. <laughs> yeah, Where are you we in just, the art? We, right? just, <laughs> we just rolled right to well, you know, like owning a bar is not too far from drug dealing. So we just like rolled like you know, right from the art business to the to the bar business. You know, I, I will defend myself, though. I do not think owning a bar is a scam because it actually, you are, yes, you are up-pricing the liquor, which people can, you know, buy. In the I don't corner. think that's a secret, though. <laughs> like, I don't think anyone goes, wait a second! <laughs> But, you know, we also provide a place for people to hang out and talk. I think you don't have to defend the concept of the tavern. (laughs) The the tavern. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like that's been. I think Bukowski has that nailed down years ago. Uh, It's okay to have a bar. Yeah, it's fine. But actually, it was kind of the smartest move I ever made because it provides sort of enough of an ongoing income. You know, it's like a lot of artist friends that I have are just like stressed fucking always about, you know, even even if they're doing well, if they're doing well, then they're worried about when they're going to stop doing well. And if they're not doing well, they're worried about if they're ever going to do well. And it's always like a struggle to sort of maintain their, you know, their studio work and find some sort of source of income. And uh, we were sort of lucky enough to stumble into this, this bar opportunity and it's provided us with, uh, I mean, nobody's getting rich off of it, but it's... Steady income. Yeah. You know yeah. that place, the Half King, in the middle of Chelsea yeah. in New York? Yeah. The owner or one of the two owners of that place is, like, a journalist, and he writes for, like, New Yorker, Vanity Fair and That's stuff, right. and, yeah, like, yeah, the yeah. Half King, which is, like, it's not it's not the same. They have sandwiches, but, I mean, right. it's a similar thing. It's, like, the art hangout yeah. over there is, like, yeah. it funds this guy to kind of, you know, like, he can write articles slower, and, you know, he's... Exactly, yeah. So it sort of provides... Um, that sort of free time that you need to sort of, you know, make things and, you know, think of it. It's all, you know, it's still always a struggle because like, I make a lot of films too and I shoot yeah. on 16 millimeter and it's, uh, it's expensive. I have tried to look at your films and I've only seen a couple. Uh-huh. Uh, they seem to be mostly found footage, but I don't know about the other ones. Uh, yeah, the more contemporary work is found footage. Earlier work was, I shot Subway Sessions, that was all my footage. Right. Was and it like then, a documentary or was it like arty? 
uh, I mean, it was it was like a surf film. Okay, it was, so it was like you shot people surfing, and then yeah, they look cool. Surfing. We took the subway. We used to take the. We used to meet every morning and take the subway to Rockaway. Right. So I just had this Super Eight camera. I just started taking it along. There was no dialogue. It was just images, sort of of the trip, and I set it to music. It was I used DNA and like James Chance. So it was like had this sort of like New York feel to it, and because it was Super Eight, it sort of had that sort of seventies, eighties vibe. Yeah. And then uh, we were we were surfing on September 11th. That that's how it ends. It's like that day. I had no, I had never made a movie, so I, I took the film and I edited it together. And I went to Anthology. I knew that Anthology was they were closed on Monday. That was like their office day. So I just went and knocked on the door, and Jonas Mikas answered the door, and I said, "Hey, I've got this film that I'd like to show." So you have like preternatural luck of like meeting people like all of your stories are like so like, you're like the hipster's hipster like you're meeting everyone running into every like this was just pure ignorance there's like, said i want to be an astronaut like a month later you were on the moon because right. you met buzz aldrin there's like somebody yeah. following you around me like what can we push drew ass backwards into today yeah. i mean yeah kind of i mean yeah i guess I mean, I, I also, I, I hustle enough to know that I knew what anthology was and I knew what No, I mean, yeah, yeah, but I mean, like, your interaction with the larger cultural world in all of your stories has been very social. Yes. You're, you're meeting people, you're doing things, you're yeah. getting involved in institutions. Right. Like, you're not, like, one of these people I interview where they're like, you know, yeah, I'm in my room making these, I hope someone buys one, and then one day they did. You know, like, that's not right. your story. You know, there are, like, some artists that are, like, just, like, they're really good at, like, making whatever they make. They're, like, really good makers. And I'm not sure I'm that. I think I'm kind of a mediocre filmmaker. Like, I think everything I do is sort of, like, good enough. In the sense that it's sort of, like, not, like, a, I'm not after, like, a formal perfection with things. Mm-hmm. It really is sort of, like, more about ideas and a broad idea of things. And I think in a certain way that's kind of a social exercise. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, if you're saying the way you judge whether your show is success or fail is by the, that opening, like yeah. how people react to it, that's definitely seeing it as a as about spreading a message. Yeah, and, and that's um, I think it's sort of cool to. Make. I mean, I, the the other movie that I made that got some attention was called TSOYW. That uh, stu- it stands for the Sorrows of Young Werther, mm-hmm. and uh, Jean Genet. Actually, this this um, this idea came from Stephen Perino. Uh, I was talking to him one day, and he was reading this biography of Genet, and Genet had had this idea that he wanted to restage, he wanted to do a, 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 a play and stage The Sorrows of Young Werther and replace the character of Charlotte with a motorcycle. And does the motorcycle talk back? Does it do Charlotte's lines? Who knows? He like okay. he, he just, it was just an idea. <laughs> All right, right? Like, I'm, I'm getting into the details. <laughs> yeah. So we so we took that idea, Amy Granite, my another artist that I knew, and myself, yeah. uh, and we made this film called TSOYW, which it's uh, dual screen. I think it's three and a half hours long. There's no dialogue. It has a really grating soundtrack by Yuta Ketter and uh, Stefan Chapernan. I mean, it's just in, nearly impossible to watch. I like, I love watching it, but it takes like a real effort. Yeah, they, uh, that's the piece that was in the Whitney Biennial. So when you judge your three-hour film that's hard to watch, right. are you watching the audience to see if they see it in three hours? Because I'll tell you what, I've been to many biennials. I give most videos and films about 17 seconds. Right. I think. Oh. Yeah. I think because 
art, like when you go see a movie, there's a preview. Yeah. You know something about what it's going to be about. Yeah, yeah, yeah You go sure. see an art film. You have no idea. <laughs> like, the fact that a movie's in the theater doesn't mean it's good. The fact that a film is not, is in the show doesn't mean it's good. So yeah. that means the expectation, how, how you would judge whether your audience is really into it is very hard. So how do you judge that? Well, in that case, every time that film has been exhibited, there's always a, a bar set up in the back of the space and not just beer and wine, like full booze. Right. Our idea being that people will stick around for the free drinks. Right. And then <laughs> But know, also is it like is it an ambient movie? In yeah. the sense oh, yeah, that you yeah, can yeah. let it go in you and out of totally, your awareness. Yeah. It's it's mostly it's mostly a dude driving guys, a motorcycle through the landscape. You guys play movies at Mandrake, we do. Is it yeah. the same idea that movies just become like a poster, that like a living picture? Yeah, I mean, I, I think in not all cases, but in this case, in TSOIW, that's very much what it is. Mm-hmm. It's like it's it's really just about sort of like the American landscape at the point of time when we made it. The majority of the movie is uh, Skylar Haskard, who's a, an artist, but who we hired to play the part of Verther. And he steals this motorcycle, and he just like drives it through the Southwest, and he like he drives it past Spiral Jetty, and he drives it past Roden Craters. Okay. And Verther, Verther's all about um, ruins, right? Castle ruins. Yeah, but we don't have those. There's here. also fake ruins in it, right? Like there are fake ruins yeah. in it. Yeah, we don't have ruins. We just have land art. Yeah. So like we use land art as our like stand-in for that. But it is like it is it is ambient, but certainly not relaxing, just because the music is is pretty jarring and intense. And it's always played really loud. Okay. Those two films, and then there were a, hand, a handful of other films that. So did I that shot like myself. launch you as a gallery artist, like getting that in the biennial? Uh, yeah. I so mean, how how did a curator see it? Well, I'd curate. I'd curated the show "Bring the War Home" mm-hmm. with uh, Elizabeth D. Gallery, and then she and David Quadrini together had a gallery out here called QED. Mm-hmm. So I curated that show, and then they asked me to come do that lecture at Yale. Okay. Right? And I still, like, as a visiting artist, but I had never had a solo show, right? So I uh, actually went to David, and I was like, hey, I have to go do this lecture at Yale, and I really like, don't want to have to say I've never had a solo show anywhere. Like, could I But they had gotten you because you were a curator. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They had voted <laughs> you in because they were like, maybe you'll curate me. <laughs> right. That yeah. was the kids yeah. did that. Okay. So then David was like, yeah, sure. So I did a show at uh, QED. So you got someone to give you a show by asking. Yes. Yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then Shamim yeah. saw... Look at, look so at this <laughs> guy! Like... <laughs> Oh my God! You can't Look hit the white privilege you like shining off of you, buddy. Wow! You just <laughs> found out you were Jewish. That's probably now. This is all gonna go yeah, away. Yeah, yeah. Or I mean, I'm out here in Hollywood, so it might all start clicking in. Yeah, maybe. Shamim saw that show, liked it, and asked me what I was working on. I said, actually, I'm working on this movie with Amy Granite. Amy was talking to uh, Henrietta Holdish, in New- who was doing visits in New York. So, yeah, it all just, it all just came, together. came together. And then uh, Olivier, our buddy Olivier Mosse, who's this sort of awesome, you know, Swiss painter who likes motorcycles, was like, oh, you know what, I'll, uh, yeah, well, I'll, get, I'll buy the film for you. So Cool. It, yeah. <laughs> and then the Whitney bought it. Of course, yeah. <laughs> that's great, yeah. yeah. And it's been all downhill from there. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, you joke, but it kind of I mean, ha- But you were yeah. in New York. 
at that time. No, I was I had just come down. Okay. But then then my luck runs out. Wait, I'm runs glad out. there's an arc here. Yeah. It runs out because So that you run into a duel with a with a poor man. He slapped you across the face and due to your hubris. Right. No, I uh, I got a show at Mocha. I was gonna have a solo solo show at Mocha out here. And you know, that was I was all psyched about that. I had, I was working with a gallery called Redling Fine Art, Erica Redling, who I really dig. She's a great person. Like I was getting calls from like the Berlin Biennial curator. I was like, oh crap, this is like actually gonna happen, right? And then uh, Mocha went bankrupt, and they canceled my show. Mm. And uh, oh. yeah, but I mean, the the show got canceled, and so Tim and Jeff from Blum and Poe were like, "Hey, just do your show here at the gallery instead." Okay. So I did, and then they picked me. <laughs> <laughs> it's just Blum and Poe. I mean, whatever. But I haven't. I mean, I haven't been in a museum since. Okay. Like it's you know it was sort of yeah. like for whatever reason that just like and you know I wasn't I didn't make the cut for that Berlin Biennial, and that just sort of it's, like it's it was okay. just like but it was just like the hammer came down. There'll I was be like more yeah. Berlin Biennials. Yeah, I don't. It's but okay. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> We go yeah. to your own bar now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm interested in like you're a curator sometimes. Yeah. And your art is in some ways curatorial. Very much. Do you ever go, okay, which one am I doing right now? I mean there are differences. Working as a curator, I, I kind of feel like that's a little bit more difficult and you have to be more careful because you're dealing it's with It's more difficult than being an artist. Oh, yes, in the, because, I'll okay. tell you, because, at least the type of work that I'm doing. I'm not going to punch you, don't worry. <laughs> because, let me finish, okay. because I'm working with other people's art. Sure, yeah. Right? Like, instead of just grabbing, you know, yeah. the cell phone case, it's, and I understand that, you know, like, how much energy and effort and fucking cash is put into these efforts, yeah. right, the, these sort of things that are made. And that you have a certain responsibility then to sort of present them in a way that is uh, gives them all the respect they're due, right? Whereas when I'm just grabbing images off the internet, and maybe this is maybe it's bad, but I just like I I don't feel like the same respect. You know what I mean? Like if I'm just taking some picture like from an advertising or something, it's like I'll use that however I want to use it. There's a really wide range or relatively wide range of like physical techniques you have to learn to do or someone does like you've made sculpture right you've made these sort of watercolor paintings Mm -hmm. you've made stuff that's like seems to be photo based like what's your relationship to the techniques involved to the the technical part yeah well it's it's the idea always comes first so then it's just sort of like however i like think it's going to be best presented i sort of work with which has its pros and cons like I, i like working like figuring out different things and like having you know like sorting out these techniques but sort of like I mentioned earlier like I, I I feel like in terms of like formal aspects like I never get like great at anything right and I like I sometimes I sort of see that as a uh, you know maybe that's kind of a con sometimes I think in my broader practice sometimes I look at things I'm like oh I wish this was better you know but but like I'll make a painting right and I don't consider myself a painter, but I'll make a painting. So then I think of that painting more as like a, like a prop that's going to be part of this sort of like larger installation in the gallery that's just going to serve its purpose and its purpose right. is to if deliver Right, if you're making a film and there's a painting in the film, it doesn't have to be a thing that you inspect by itself. Yeah. It just has to yeah. be those colors. Correct, in place. Yeah. right. So it always sort of, you know, it always just uh, 
kind of blows my mind when a collector will like buy one of those things, you know. But then I also sort of understand that what they're they're just sort of like buying a souvenir of that larger installation. True. I mean, if you are a collector of essentially conceptual art, then you believe in that Correct. thing. You yeah. believe in the you know that you yeah. could buy the idea. Right. You know? right. And I did. And like I, I consider myself like fitting in that sort of history of conceptual art. Yeah. Where it's like the the object itself is not so important. Right. right. Which sort of brings me back to the question you asked about curating and why I think that's more difficult, and at least for me, than making art. It's because when I'm curating, I'm like, I'm working with these objects that I really respect, mm. right? As opposed to when I you know, put together my own shows, I'm working with these objects that I've made and... I sort of understand them for what they are. Okay, when you're making a piece, you have a mental map or set of uh, concerns that dictate how the objects get arranged. Correct. When you're curating, each object has, to some degree to you, hidden set of concerns that the artist had about what it's referring to. It comes fully loaded already. Right, that you have to kind of make sure you don't interfere with, but at the same time, if you're doing a group show, right. then you have to arrange them so that they seem to have a thread. And everybody knows that group shows always seem like, does there a thread? Like, it, it always seems thin. I, I think it's fair yeah. to say that even, like, group shows, I think, historically, like, seem thin to people. They sure. like they they're like ah oh, these are artists that this person likes and right. they're in the same room right. but there is a thread in your mind and a lot of times it's you know there's a visible something for sure yeah it's it's like what I'm trying to do when I put those group shows together is to sort of create some sort of uh, it's not a relationship between the objects it's it's I guess closer to like a conversation between the artworks like to like really look at the art I always select artists for shows that I've sort of known their work for a while, you know, and like and understand it. Or if I've just met them, I I know them well and it's sort of like and I get their like what they think about the work. Mm-hmm. And then of course I bring my own ideas to it and like the way that, that I view it. But when I've set those shows up, I'm like I want the pieces to communicate with each other in such a way that they that they sort of inform one another, right? Or sort of like point to like little specific ideas, you know, like with within the the pieces that they're across from or next to, or that it's not just a, these are six people that have been in my kitchen, you know. Right. Like, have you seen it done wrong? Like all the artists you like, right? All of the artists have a something you can think of that fit a theme, right? But they have been arranged, or the specific works have been chosen, and you, it's it's not right in some way. Almost always. That's the, <laughs> like that's like that's most group shows. I think. Okay, but especially when they're in galleries. Can you, you know, give me so, like a concrete example of like how that expresses itself to you? What what failure looks like in that context? Uh, a juxtaposition that you were just like, oh, that was terrible. Right. The way it looks to me is is when I can't. I can't understand the juxtaposition. Like, I don't... You don't know why they're next to you. Yeah. Well, it, okay. Two things. Either I can't tell why they're next to each other, or it is painfully obvious <laughs> why they're next to each other. In both cases, I don't consider that well done. So you want 
the ideal experience is a sort of moment of you have to think about it, but then thinking about it is rewarding. Yeah, uh, I, Ed Ed Rishay calls it uh, "huh wow" as opposed to "wow huh," which I've I've always sort of wow. appreciated. Okay, yeah. yeah. So a lot of times, like you walk in, especially with these sort of like you know huge like you know big architecture you know type shows where all the work is gigantic and it's sort of like it's all just so like glossy mm-hmm. it's just the gloss just goes from like one piece to the next and like all you see is the sparkle right mm-hmm. you can't find anything underneath it like that i think is an example of just a terrible group show but that also relies on the viewer to see the curator as an artist and to be looking for that thread rather than to see the curator as like a functionary and you're just looking, you're moving right toward the art. I don't think you have to see the curator as an artist. Or at least you have as, to see as the a, curator as, as a thinker. Right. Yeah. And, and you want to be looking at that thinking. Yeah. Sometimes if you have a lot of experience of a lot of different works of art, there are museum shows where a critic might go into the show having already seen every single item in the show. Yeah, sure. But the public usually hasn't. Right. So the critic goes in and then goes, okay, well, here's Renica Dykstra's photo of the bather right next to Picasso's bather. Right. I've already seen both of these things. So I'm evaluating the relationship. And it's right. too obvious or it's not, you know, whatever. Right. Whereas for the public, they may have never seen Renica Dykstra's photo of the bather. And so they're not thinking about it as a constructed situation. Right. They're just, they just could look at the piece and they're like, oh, I get to see this now. Right. And with a, a gallery show, the, the people coming usually haven't seen most of the works because they're usually new, right? True, true. So do you feel like there's a difference between the way you look at it and the way that they're looking at it? Or oh, the way that cur- other curators might look at it and they're looking for you, the curator, whereas most viewers are just looking at the art? The trick is to, like the best shows are the ones that succeed at both, right? Mm-hmm. So, you can, so you can have someone with a real deep knowledge comes in and see, like sees the show and sort of understands those sort of connections. And the casual viewer that may not know any of those artists can come in and still sort of feel like an aesthetic thread, like a vibration that runs through it all and appreciate it. Um, I think Jay Sanders, that the, the biennial that he did, um, it's probably the best, I think that's the best group show I've ever seen. Mm. And I th- because it succeeded in that way where it, there was sort of all these juxtapositions amongst, are you like, oh, I get it, because, you know, what that year person, was that, do you know? 2012. Okay. There were, like, there was sort of every relationship. There were sort of aesthetic relationships. You know, there were sort of, like, insidious relationships. You're like, oh, that's hilarious, because I know that he had an affair with her. <laughs> you know, you know what yeah. I mean? It's like, and it was just sort of, like, an enjoyable show to, like, walk through. My my girlfriend Chloe, she's she's in the comedy business. She has like she's not from the art world. She doesn't like knows very little about it. She right. knows a lot more now because she hangs out with me. Right. But I always like I really enjoy her take on everything, just mm-hmm. because she like just speaks so plainly about any show that she sees, right? And uh, sort of brings this sort of level of knowledge to it that someone who knows too much about everything they're looking at just sort of can't. I guess to answer your question, sort of, the best group shows or the best curated shows are shows that I like and Chloe likes. Okay. Right? Like, that's the, the those are the best shows. So Chloe's coming in cold, basically. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Like, super cold. Like, you know, doesn't doesn't know who any of these people, like, you know. She's the everyman. She's the everyman. 
What do you think of like art fairs? Because those are totally uncurated. Yeah. And but do they get a pass? Because you know there's no uh, art what, like guided <laughs> intelligence. Art fairs are just to make money though. Like, I, love field, art fairs. Just love Personally, I love art fairs money. because I hate walking around galleries. Like right. I hate doing galleries. And you right. do galleries and you see like three artists. Right. If you do the art fair, you're like, oh, I know what that guy is now. It's like doing them all at once. Right. Um, That's and so like I get them all in and now I know who everybody is and then and, and I I am like kind of myopically focused on the on right. the work and you know and so for me it's like oh I did it all I know all these guys now and I've seen all these things right. and I can remember like the things I liked I just go those matter and everything else is just like and but, out he, but the here's the thing that like but you're only seeing this is why I don't like art fairs right I understand what you're saying, and I appreciate yeah. it for that. Like, I can see, like, some artists from India that I would never... I've never been to India, so, you know, it's like right. I wouldn't have seen that work. But the thing that always occurs to me is that you're seeing just a very specific part of that artist's work, right? And it's the most commercially viable aspect of that artist's work. I don't know if you've ever been in an art fair. It's the thing that was finished in September, it's not like it's just like that's all. Like it, it doesn't necessarily mean the most commercial thing. It's just right. like that's what they had. Right, um, right, right. But I think you, as an artist and a curator, are always seeing context as the most interesting thing, or at least con- context is like always part of what you're seeing yeah, for you. I, 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 I would agree with that. So the context of an art fair, I can't get away from the. It gets to you before the art does. Yeah, it's just that it's so shoddy. Like the lights just like sort of like clipped to the like piece of one by four. On cubicles. <laughs> on on lighting day, like when I go hang one of my shows, right. I hang it in a day or maybe two. And then they go, We're gonna do the lights tomorrow. And right. I go, Okay, I'll be home. Yeah. Like they just do I I've yeah. never noticed light in my entire life. Oh, interesting. You know, I don't know what that means because I'm a painter. But, I mean, I've noticed light on things, but yeah. I've never noticed the lighting in an art show. I know a lot of other artists who do, especially, like, people who are, like, really thick impasto or they do oil paint. But right. it's, like... The good lighting is invisible, like architecture, 99% invisible, blah, blah, blah. I think for me it's the filmmaker thing. Like, yeah. I always... Okay, you got to light up that corner. There's no way you can see anything. <laughs> just, like, you just walk over. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Both of those are like really honest, right? You know, like that's just the way you see things. Yeah, like you're always seeing these objects in context. Yeah, and also it's like I've been to plenty of art fairs. I was still working as a you know art handler. You were moving the art once, yeah, the, yeah. once the art fairs. So it's like I see that context too. Like I see how shitty everybody's treated. You know what I mean? Like I see like all these workers like putting this thing together and then making it, and then uh, they're not allowed to come to the opening. One of the favorite things I ever did was for one of the early armory fairs, I was installing, and I just, like, at one point just had, like, just took a couple minutes and had, like, a real good look at somebody's exhibitor pass, and then went home and made about 40 of them. Nice. And just, like, just gave them out to all my friends, and we all went to the opening. It was, like, you know, it's, like, it's, like, free drinks. And so that context really annoys me, too. Those fairs, this whole operation. I mean, I, if I start thinking like that, I hate everything. Yeah, no, I know. You I know, know what I mean? Like, I'll be like, yeah. this is a really good hot dog. Yeah. But, you know, like, at Dude, a certain point, what... you have to, like, cut off. Some parts of the world are good, right. and you will enjoy that part. Yeah. And you will not think about how we're all living. Well, that's in why I live at the beach, like and I spend most of the time in my backyard. <laughs> <laughs> you just can't handle the rest. Yeah. But, I mean, I'd, I liked art fairs when they in the beginning. Like, mm-hmm. when... Uh, 
Were, were you still in New York when they did the um, Gramercy Hotel Fair? Uh, that was like the the folk art one. No, that wasn't. That no, one. no, no. The that, Gramercy that Fair the became the, the Armory building. Fair. Okay, no, I wasn't there. Yeah. That was a lot of fun. There was an admission cost, but everybody knew that if you just walked through the bar, you could like walk, like go through the. Well, back everybody and... who falls ass backwards. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's no way I would have known that. No. Ever. <laughs> I mean, art fairs were fun in the beginning, but then they just got fucking enormous. And like you said, like the whole. I mean, I'm not. I've never in my entire career been an artist who's like had a waiting list or like sold a lot of art. So I've never sort of experienced that. Like, we need a piece of yours for this art fair, like right now. It's pretty cool. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> oh <laughs> I'm god, sure. <laughs> I'm sure. Really, I think we should start to to, to wrap it up. Oh on yeah. That note. A bummer. Oh, I'm really enjoying on. myself. Go ahead. You were, you were in the middle of saying something. <laughs> All I was gonna say is that I think that the fairs are just so big now, and yeah. that they've taken over everything. Mm. Right. I know just because the bars across the street from Blum and Poe, that nobody fucking ever goes in there. They've got you know this enormous space, and they've got thirty or forty people working there. And every time I go over to you know ask a question or something or tell them something, it's empty. It's like a big empty space. No one goes to the galleries anymore because they go to the art fairs. Right. Right? So it's sort of like the context of what art is is totally changed. But maybe we're seeing an end to that because evidently from what I've been reading, everything's just collapsed. I don't know if you guys have read this. Like, it's always collapsed. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe, like, maybe it's going to change again. But, I mean, I wouldn't mind if there were far, far fewer art fairs. Yeah. Like the larger context of, like, economically is a complicated thing. But I just mean, like, as a thing to see. Sure. You know, as a show, yeah. in a certain sense. And, it, yeah, and, and as a show, it's it's interesting. But it is, you know, it's it's wholly uncurated, right? Yeah. It actually is commerce is the curator. It's uh, capital is the curator. Yeah. So it's interesting to think of it in terms of that. Every article I see about art fairs is whatever trend the writer doesn't like in art, like right. their personal taste, art fairs are responsible for it. Sure. So if they don't like tiny art, it's because, like, oh, there's lots of little pieces on art fairs because people can take them on the plane. And right. if they don't like big art, it's like, oh, there's lots of big art at art fairs because people, like, want to make a spectacle. And it's like, it becomes an excuse for anything. Sure. And when something becomes an excuse for anything, it doesn't really mean anything. And right. I know personally that, like, literally what's in the art fair sometimes is, like, totally random. Yeah. Like, they're like, huh. we'll take this to Seattle, we'll take this to Miami, and, like, it doesn't have anything to do with what I, you know, they're, they're like, well, that's more green, and people like green. You know, right, like, right. it doesn't happen to me, which means it probably doesn't happen to a lot of people, but it does happen to some. Yeah. Seeing it as completely a mechanized process is silly, because you forget that people have to fucking make things. You know, yeah. like, even, you know, I mean, not everybody makes things, but, you know. You guys didn't even talk about Gravity's Rainbow yet. I thought this whole thing was going to be... Uh. I wanted to you talking to me about one piece you did, which is about that part of LA. Right? right. The subjects you feel like you address, like what are they? Like there's that one. Right. Uh, when I was in grad school, I I did a paper in one of Bob Morris's classes, critical thinking class, that was um, landscape as metaphor in the work of Thomas Pynchon and the work of uh, Robert Smithson and the writings of Thomas Pynchon. Mm-hmm. And sort of ever since then, I've Pynchon sort of been in my head in this real specific way. You know, he wrote Gravity's Rainbow while he was living in Manhattan Beach, which I don't think I even knew until I moved out here. Just sort of like started like discovering this. It's Manhattan almost, Beach 
for those who don't know, is not in Manhattan. Okay, correct. Yeah, it's in, it's in the <laughs> South Bay of Los Angeles. You know, and he worked. Uh, he worked for Boeing, and he like wrote. You know, wrote these technical manuals on uh, ICBMs. That, and so I, I sort of feel like the the research I was doing in LA sort of melded with all the reading that the of pension that I've had been doing and yeah. continue to do. Like I just rewrite, like reread those books all the time. And there's always some sort of like new idea about Los Angeles right, yeah. in there. Um, so the two sort of like meld together in a way. So I feel like often it's the, the subjects that I sort of touch on or I'm interested in are sort of fed through uh, that understanding of literature. When I did, I read Gravity's Rainbow. I realized after a few years that it was inhabiting my thinking. You know, like Pynchon was in my head. Yeah. And I was like, I would do subjects in school or whatever, and I kept being interested in things that ended up being things that were also in the book. I mean, it's a full of shit, but like, right. you know, like, it'd be like, oh, let's talk about World War II and whatever. And like, oh, that's in the book. Yeah, yeah. When I did the pictures for every page of Gravity's Rainbow, part of it was to get it out, like right. in a certain sense, like uh, really work through the ideas. The weird thing is, is it worked in some sense. Like, I still, like, read the book, and I'm like, this is a great book. But by the time I had finished drawing every single page, 755 illustrations for that original edition, I was no longer thinking in Pinchonian cycles. and Or at least I had gotten it down to a level where I could think about other things as much as right. I was thinking about him. But, yeah, but, I mean, which but then was, you also which did was, the, uh, the Girls and Octopuses yeah. Pieces. But for me, that piece was as much about, like, James Bond or right. about, like, Japanese things. Like, Tentacle porn? Yeah. yeah. It's still there. Like, I still like Pynchon. I'm still, right. like, I like those things I'm interested in. But my literal thought processes did not keep following his. Right. You know, like, I had gotten it out in a way that in my head it felt like I was thinking differently once right. I had done it because I felt like I had addressed that subject so completely. Well, Octopus you know, Gregor is like by far one of my favorite characters in that book. So when I saw those pieces of yours, I was like, holy shit. He just did like all of these drawings of the Octopus Gregor. But it, at the time, I didn't even think of that that way. You uh, were, yeah. No, I was just thinking I wanted to do a, essentially, if I did the same painting of the same subject over and over, I would eventually do one that was that was really good. Right. You know, like just do it a hundred times. Right. Yeah. And so I was trying to think of an animal that didn't have like a specific meaning, that didn't have a specific symbolism and that didn't Im like put a very specific limit on what the picture could be like. Because there's so more elephants. Right. Yeah. Elephants right. are a certain size, like a cat and a dog. They're facing this way. They're domestic. Right. Like octopuses end up being things that like you could make them any size and they would still be plausible yeah. and you could make them any color. That's and, true. Yeah, and they could be attached to anything. And so it made, like, you could make 100 pictures like that. They can get through anything crazy. they can fit their beak through. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I knew that they could get through mm. almost anything. I knew in Seattle they had one that kept climbing out of the tank at night. To get crabs. Yeah. To get crabs. In, yeah. <laughs> There's another one that got out of its tank, scurried through a pipe into the ocean, escaped. I have a hard time eating octopus. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, because like, they're gonna come come back <laughs> later on. They're gonna be like Drew. It's like we know what you did, my yeah. man. Um, I mean, I understand what you mean about sort of the about Gravity's Rainbow getting in your head because what makes him such a superior writer, I think, is his ability through this sort of like weirdly straightforward narrative. For as, as surreal as things get, like the way he writes, it's just like he's just telling you 
with the scene. You know, you know what I mean. Yeah, the, the structure picture. of the of Gravity's Rainbow is a bunch of things happen in two different places, yeah. and then he digresses about character, random characters for about a chapter each right. time one appears, right. and then he goes back to the main narrative. That structure isn't that complicated. Right. Gravity's Rainbow and the work that I'm, it's not like it comes from those books or sort of the ideas have it really anything to do with those books. It's more just like those books sort of inform the thinking. Like you think of mo- a common novel, like usually the way it works is you have a character, the character has connections to the other characters and the story oozes between them. And the way Gravity's Rainbow works and a lot of Pynchon novels works is that there's a character and they're surrounded by themes. And then he picks up a theme or a symbol out of that and then he talks about that. It doesn't yeah. necessarily have any connection to the character. Like, right, for sure. like he goes on a literally a, a chapter-long digression about a light bulb. Yeah, I like Because that the light bulb is thematically related to somebody else. So right. it's like, and your work is about picking up these objects, these symbols, and then talking about the, the halo around them of thematic association. That's, that's uh, a great way to think about it, yeah. Fi- like finding the, the light bulb that never goes out, right? So, so to pick, not just to pick up any object off the table, but to sort of figure out what the most important object on the table is. Not even the most important, or the object on the table that seems to most identify the table. Mm-hmm. So that then you can sort of key in on that object, and that object, it has like a resonance that, that's larger than itself. With L.A. as a subject, I mean, say Los Angeles is a subject for you in a certain way. I would say so, yeah. um, It has been. New York is a subject. With many places as subjects, you can tell a narrative going from person to person. Like, this person is in charge, then these people take over, then these people take over. History as a, as a line. Right. With L.A., it's so diffused and so much is hidden that you can't tell a straight history of, like, this person was mayor and then this person and then this person and this is how the city changed. You really have to talk about it thematically. Like, here's Los Angeles. Here's Hollywood as a theme. Here's celebrity as a theme. Here's aerospace. Like, you have to talk about it in terms of, like... There isn't a straight narrative. There isn't a straight story that tells the story of L.A., but there is... A bunch of ideas which are often very next to each other, and it's the most interesting thing isn't what happened in terms of its story. It's the fact that those things were next to each other. Yeah. No, I I agree. I lived in New York for a long time, and like making work about New York never occurred to me because, for one thing, I feel like it's just like New York is so it's so tied to its own history. Like New York is almost like a city of its own history, you know, like right down to the Yankee. It's like everything is like every street you walk on, you know, like perfectly well, like what's, you know, what's gone, like what's happened there before. Whereas LA was a city that sort of uniquely unattached to its history. And in fact, if you've seen the the documentary LA plays itself, yeah, yeah, like warps its history. Like LA plays itself is a, is a documentary. It was on Netflix for a while about, in movies, when you see Los Angeles, like, built, like, landmarks in the city and, like, how they represented in movies. Yeah, and, and sort of how it was, like, the history was distorted. Yeah. Right? Distorted by. So it was, 
interesting for me to come to L.A. and then try to discover what its history was, and then discover that its history was actually buried, that history of oil. That The city really is like a subterranean city. Everything that's interesting about L.A. happens under the surface. You know what I mean? Like, it's like all the Hollywood stuff is so boring. It's like But it's, then there's, there's secret stuff, like uh, the hidden stuff there. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, but it's uh, all the sub stuff. That's there was like that, there were those tunnels, James Caan, and Jack Nicholson both had tunnels under their house leading to the Playboy Mansion's basement. Oh, I didn't know that. That's cool. Yeah. And um, then there's bank robbers, the, the underground bank robbers in L.A. There was this hole-in-the-ground gang, they were called or whatever. This is like in the 80s or 90s. But basically, they would drill up from the ground and they robbed, cleaned out these banks by going right. through these like drainage tunnels. And their best day... They literally did two heists at once. Oh, nice. And they drilled up, and they uh, they took, like, ATVs. But, yeah. Wait, wait, what year was this? It was in the 80s or 90s, and it's in that book, um, Burglar's Guide to the City or something. It's by gotcha. the guy who does the building blog, which is, like, an architecture blog. Right. But what you were saying, too, like, that whole, like, the, like the dispersed nature of the place, right? Yeah. Like, if New York is a vertical city, L.A. is very much a horizontal city. And it just keeps going. It just keeps, like, going out into the desert. Right? Like, New York is also an island, so it's contained. Right. There's no containment here. You like, yeah. keep pouring asphalt over sand forever, right? And just keep going out. New York was sort of like the like 19th century version of America, and L.A. becomes like the, like the 20th century version, where, where everything becomes automotive and, and far, like expanding and fast. Right. And but also things don't make sense in no, terms okay. of like this happened and that there's no, the cause and effect doesn't like happen a lot. Like you don't there's see a, something and then something happens because of it. And it's, it's like, also completely dysfunctional. It's it like fail. Like the, the city like in this weird way just like fails entirely. And eventually like the big one will hit and it will all slide in the ocean and will be forgotten. Right. And that. I really like that it'll all be just well, just that it's just this all this effort right is just sort of like just sort of expanding and like spinning tears around. and rain yeah and it's all going to go away at some point so besides LA pension what are what are your other subjects up until this point it's sort of once I moved to LA I sort of like really sort of grasped onto to the history of this place as a, a launching pad to sort of you know think about some different ideas. And I recently just read this book by Lawrence Rickles called uh, A Case of California. Mm-hmm. He's sort of mo- most famous for the vampire lectures that he gave. In this book, he talks about the, it's a, a mid-century, 1950s, American f- a post-Fordian psychological idea of the imposter, mm-hmm. right? It, imposture as a sort of method of coping that Americans are specifically privy to. And it's sort of about creating like this false front that we all carry in front of us to deflect any true psychological damage. Right? I've weirdly, like recently I've been reading about Marilyn Monroe a lot. Mm-hmm. On the internet there's a number of pictures, like lots of them, of her reading books. Right. Um, and this was like, this was a self-conscious effort on her part because she hated the depiction as the dumb blonde. Uh, she wasn't particularly well educated, but she was. She married sm- Arthur Miller. Yeah, she was a smart lady. Um, so whenever, whenever she was in a photo shoot, when she had downtime, she would always find a bookshelf 
and take a book and start reading the book, knowing that the photographer would find this interesting and start taking pictures of it. And it worked like every time. So now there are, there are like 40 or 50 photos of Marilyn Monroe reading which for some reason are just all over the internet now. I don't, I don't, somebody must have died or something. Cause, like it. Oh, okay. I like that as sort of like several levels of imposture, right? Where like the, the character Marilyn Monroe herself is a, it's a created persona, right? And then she's creating this version of the smart Marilyn Monroe on top. I find it interesting and in terms of um, a psychological idea of, like America, the entertainment industry sort of creating a vision of America. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I've been doing a lot of research about that and, and sort of finding different pictures. And there's like a, there are so many books by, about Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. She certainly wasn't like the best actress of her day. Um, she was much better actress than people gave her credit for. Like her, com her comedic timing is unbelievable. She becomes this icon after her death. It's almost like her tragic death was like the reason that she's elevated into the sort of iconography, yeah. especially with Andy Warhol, right? Who like almost like presents her as like a like a golden goddess. And I don't know if there's anything there, but mm -hmm. that's that's what I'm digging into now to try and sort of sort that out as an idea and see how it can be presented. Because I have this idea too that that's what we all do as artists, right? We, like we create this sort of facade that we like send out there into the world how do you decide if you've got enough like when when is the moment where you're like okay this is this idea is not going away uh i i think just like a um duration or depth of interest i mean a lot of ideas go away. i mean my, my computer's filled with files that went nowhere you know yeah, I mean, yeah. if this thing sticks with me like for the next year if mm. i keep like doing it then i will likely decide that it's worthwhile and will probably at that point have sort of enough accumulated material to figure out how it should be like presented. You're at City of Quartz, right? Oh, yeah. All right, I just wanted to make sure. <laughs> Someone should make that into a movie, although I don't know how you could. You make a documentary. You could make a L.A. Plays Itself kind of movie right. about that book. Right. Um, a City of Quartz is like basically just about... There's also the sequel to that book. The Disaster one. Yeah. City of Disasters. Yeah, about L.A. and sort of like the, the complicated cultural overlapping force fields of L.A. L.A.'s ecology is, I mean, it's just another reason why the whole place is fucked up and sort of like in an interesting way is that it's, the way the ecology is supposed to work is like the fires are supposed to burn and then the, the rains are supposed to come and wash away all the topsoil and then the plants can grow again, right? But it's sort of, we've put up all this, these sort of, this architecture that blocks that process, which is why, you know, things fall down all the time, you know? So, like, it, why it's, Malibu is just a big mess. And, it, yeah, we lived here, and it's yeah. nice. Yeah. No, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. New York works so well. It's like almost annoying. Just a bunch of haters over there. <laughs> I lived there longer than I've lived here, although I'm catching up here. But, you know, like you drive in New York and like everyone knows how to do it. It's so great. Like you just cruise through, right? Out here, it's a disaster. Like <laughs> Everybody's first day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I've never been able to figure it out. Like we, we all spend all of our time in cars and it's, uh, it just doesn't work. It's because nobody's seen that particular road shape before, like that particular like asterisk of intersections. Right. Like it's not a grid. 
LA has that sign, which still baffles me. It's like the yellow sign that just has like the, the two lanes coming together into one. Yeah. And it's not a yield sign. It's like basically just saying, you guys figure it out. <laughs> like it's coming. LA, something's coming. <laughs> something's coming. <laughs> Meanwhile, there's people not in New York or LA listening to this and they're just hating both of us. Right. <laughs> well, if you're an artist and you live in Chicago, move. I think we can cut it there. I hear you. We got a lot out of Drew. We did, and we had CBGBs, we had philosophy. Well, I'm, uh, I really enjoyed it. This, cool. was, this was nice. Excellent. Yeah. But wait, but wait, I want to point out that when we were talking about paranoia, listen for police sirens, both in New York and LA in the background. Nice. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're always after me. But thanks again. We really appreciate Thank it. Thank you, guys. Great. This is great. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this episode of We Eat Art. Check out our guest, Drew Heitzler. His latest work. At a screening of his film, T-S-O-Y-W. This is at the Power Station in Dallas, Texas on April 5th, 2017. Also, John has more of my artwork at my Instagram page, which is John Mahias Papeng, or Tumblr, All Things Papeng. And Zach has a book with China Mieville called The Worst Breakfast, available everywhere where books are sold. If you want to see images of some of the artists that we reference, you should check out our Instagram page or our Facebook page at We Eat Art. You can support this podcast by liking us on Facebook and Twitter at We Eat Art. You can also rate us on iTunes. Please subscribe or tell a friend. We Eat Art is produced by Paping and Mnemonic Recordings. Our sound producer, sir, engineer, and editor. <laughs> Did you see that study where they're like vampire movies are popular when, when Democrats are president and zombie movies are popular when Republicans are president? <laughs>